0: There you go, Nina. Another dose of audio medicine by Green Zone Hero on Straight Out of Combat Radio. Uh, Fascinating story. It's one that needs to be heard. And, you know, it's one of the few episodes that we've had so far that's actually talked about God.
1: Yeah. Just. His introspection and, and what he shares, and I, I think so many of us go through, you know, having been raised in a Christian family or have been brought up with certain beliefs, and then having going, you know, having gone through um, our different experiences, and having shame be such a dramatic part of bringing us down, and just how he dealt with it and how he shares. You know his knowledge is just phenomenal. So many people can learn and benefit from his experience and what he went through and his journey. And you know he went through that journey on purpose. You know I, I truly believe that that was his journey, and because of what his work is and what he's doing now and what he's able to do for people.
0: And then it make, you're so right; it makes it even more remarkable. I can tell you, I'm going to add his books to my stack of books, and um, just we hope that everybody continues to listen to the stories that we're going to tell. We look forward to the next one and appreciate you being here, Nina, and appreciate people listening.
1: Absolutely. I thank you, John, for just connecting us with these different individuals. It's amazing to connect with them and hear their stories and, and share. So it's an honor to be here. Thank, thank
0: you. Thank you. Least I can do, thank you. Your steely killer shadow in the night.
1: You were born to fight.
0: Welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, where we honor freedom to improve business.
1: Straight Out of Combat Radio is the platform, the voice for veterans to share their personal stories, and we honor their wisdom. And we want to diminish the negative stereotypes of veterans.
0: My name is John Crotek. I'm a U.S. Army veteran, and I was an NBC NCO.
1: And I'm Nina Herman, U.S. Army veteran, and I was a finance officer.
0: Our veteran guest today is Chaplain David W. Peters. He served as an enlisted Marine and Army chaplain, deploying to Baghdad, Iraq in 2005 and 2006. His experiences in Iraq and the founding of the Episcopal Veterans Fellowship is told by NPR's John Burnett. His books, Death, Letter, God, Sex, and War, and Post-Traumatic God, How the Church Cares for People Who Have Been to Hell and Back, vividly describes his own path, to healing after war, a path he regularly invites his fellow veterans to consider. David blogs for the Huffington Post, Oxford Press, and hosts two podcasts, the Dear Padre podcast and a serial story, the Ermine Freed Penitential. I got to get that one out there. At present, David serves as the prior of the Hospitallers of St. Martin, a Christian community for veterans ministry and the associate rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In 2017, David was named one of the 5 Episcopal Church Foundation 2017 Fellows and he is using his grant to travel around the country offering healing services for veterans. He enjoys long distance running, walking and bicycling around Austin, a beautiful city by the way. He reads lots of novels and he loves extra dark chocolate. He is married to Sarah Bancroft and has three sons. And I know that he's got an eighth grader now, just graduated. So congratulations and thanks for being here, Chaplin.
2: Oh, it's great to be here with you. Thank you.
0: It's awesome. What a great story. I know that you know we had tried this once before, and it was uh, the sound didn't come out. So we we're hoping for better sound today. And you know, right off the bat, you know, who inspired you growing up? When I was uh,
2: growing up in church, there were a lot of people I looked up to, and a lot of them were guys in my church who had served in World War II and also in the, um, in the Marine Corps. That's one of the reasons. When, as I was looking at what I was supposed to do with my life as a high school student, and I, I thought about kind of my own trajectories, and I knew that I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to do it in the Marine Corps, mainly because of these guys. There's something about them that and I want to experience and be like them. I was I was actually a very terrified teenager many times of physical danger. I was uh, I was scared about canoeing and diving off diving boards and like, this stuff really scared me. <laughs> I, mean, I thought, well, if I join the Marine Corps, I will get over that fear really fast. And, and that that did happen. Uh whereas the um things like making me more neat and tidy uh did not. The Marine Corps, I I followed all the rules, and then sort of went back to my normal messy, um, you know, draping clothes over chairs after that. But it was really those, those men that at that time were in their 50s and 30s, I believe, who kind of showed me an example of what uh, kind of vision of manhood for, that I could follow. And I did that, and I'm glad I did that because they were really good guys, and still are. One, one of them recently died um after living into his 90s um, he was a marine corps veteran that was on saipan and i uh, went by the name of bud but his first name is bud and barr, b-a-r-r um a really brave marine veteran from world war ii that i really looked up to and
0: in, in those days you know i hear you on those stories about those world war ii veterans uh david phenomenal stories yeah, but, you know, but to back up just a hair, you know, just when you talk to those veterans, I recently wrote something on LinkedIn, I think, about one of those guys that hung out in our neighborhood and, you know, to hear mm. those stories and, you know, I, I'm so glad you pointed that out as what an inspiration was for you because it was for many of us and, and, uh, and those stories are dying off and they need to be told and it makes it even more important to tell your story. So, you know, thank you for remembering those guys and for telling us that did you so how old were you when you went to the Marine Corps I was 17 when my parents had to sign the
2: papers but I didn't leave till after high school graduation I left the day after I graduated from high school the morning after the graduation which I didn't really it sort of made sense at the time like yeah I'm going to graduate on a maybe it's a Friday night and leave on a Saturday morning at five in the morning and the recruiter came and I remember him sitting there in the living room and I was all ready to go. I didn't, didn't really have anything. I think I might have had a, maybe had like a, a book or something with me. This is very very minimal, and I just went with him, and uh, that was the beginning of my summer after high school because I wanted to get it over with. You know, they'd, I'd heard how challenging boot camp was, and I thought, well, the sooner I started, the sooner it's over, and it was the best summer of my life in, in many many ways. Uh, I didn't think I. I would do well there. I kind of really was really terrified at the daunting challenges. But right away, I was a member of this team and we worked together. And it was almost like the first time in my life where I didn't have to think for about three months and just all follow the orders, do the best you can. And uh, even if you do the best you can, you're still going to suffer. So you might as well suffer together. And it was really like a big blur of those three months. And I came out of that. Uh, just with a new identity and a new vision for who I was, and I'm I'm really thankful for that summer. And it was right after high school. So I was 19. I graduated. When I was 19.
1: There's nothing like forcing you out of your comfort zone than joining the Marine Corps.
2: <laughs> yes, I I found it to be the strangest organization I'd ever been part. Of. I mean,
1: <laughs> there's all
2: these like. Stories they tell all the time, and you're talking to ghosts of Chesty Puller every night. You pray to these characters from the past, and you know draw on them from ins- for inspiration. And uh, and and just that, just absolute devotion to the to the core, to the unit, to the to my drill instructors who were uh, were very uh, intensely focused people that I, I never really seen that up close, um, except for maybe some Southern preachers I had heard at a camp or something like that, the, the intensity of expression. And in a lot of ways, it was it was not that different from what I'd experienced in high school. I went to a high school, that had a lot of rules and regulations, and it was a Christian high school and sort of very regimented in many ways. And so in some ways, it was very different from that, and also it, it kind of, I'd been used I, I was used to being yelled at in high school, so it's sort of a <laughs> smooth transition in that way. I think if I went now at forty two, I would, I'd be like, eh, I don't think, I don't think you're supposed to yell about the showers much, you know, or <laughs>
0: you
2: know, we've only cleaned this room so many times, or I would be less uh, compliant, I think now than that I was back then.
0: Wow. Well, that's funny, you know. So, so I know that every Marine is is a rifleman. Is that true?
2: Yes, that that is true. Um, We all had rifles, and we all. But you guys, basic understanding was there that we're all supposed to be Marines first, and and our other jobs are are sort of in support of that main mission of being this being the country's troops that are just going to run out of the vehicle or run out of the boat or helicopter and and put on the most aggressive assault possible, and that. That kind of training was kind of always there in the Marine Corps. That that we, the whole country was counting on us to be this force. In spite, of, you know, I wasn't thinking strategically then, or at a higher level of um, command authority or anything. But, but that that kind of made sense with the training. We weren't just being trained to kill, but we were also being trained to die. Like just to go out there and not care about anything, mm-hmm. just the mission. And, uh, and I saw it again and again how, how we trained that, that that, um, mentality really took hold of me. And so then to become a civilian again was always a little, <laughs> a little difficult to, to think long term, to think strategically about the future. But being an enlisted guy in the Marine Corps was all about aggression and just being, being, good that one time when they really, really, really need
0: you. So how did you make it to the uh, from that, you know, the first time you went in the Marines, how did you make it to chaplainhood? How did that go down?
2: Yeah, I, I get a lot of grief for joining the Army as a chaplain after the Marine <laughs> Corps, mostly by Marines and, uh, and the, the truth is after 9-11, I was in seminary at the time when 9-11 happened and I recently I, actually I was, 9-11 happened, I got, I got married about a week for two two weeks later, after nine eleven, by the time the Iraq war stuff was getting going, i graduated from seminary, I had a baby, uh, my wife and I had a baby at first, our first at that time, and also um, I kind of felt like this was going to be a much bigger military exercise. You know, it wasn't really called a war then. It was going to be a much bigger event than than what I was hearing from. From in the media, really. I wasn't really sure. It just seemed like they were going to need a lot of troops to invade Iraq, if that's really what we're going to do. Then when we invaded Iraq, it it became very clear they needed a lot of troops, which meant they would need chaplains. At the time, I was serving as a youth minister in a church in Pennsylvania, and I felt like, well, this could be maybe the way I serve now, that I'm kind of older and not in the Marine Corps anymore. And and I'd been out of the reserves for a while. So I went down, I talked to the Navy recruiter, and the Navy recruiter was like, well, we have too many chaplains right now, and we don't really need more chaplains. And, and I said, well, I want to be with the Marines. And he said, oh, no, you'll never be with the Marine Corps. You'll be on a ship somewhere. And, and, and right away I was like, Yeah, you know, I kind of want to be part of the, the thing that's happening, and I don't want to get out. I don't want to be in the military a long time. I already did six years of that. And it, I could feel it. It's a it's a huge uh, commitment to be in the military. And I knew that I really didn't want to have that the rest of my life. I just wanted to be part of this this event that was happening in our country. And so I, I um, called the Army recruit. I felt really weird about that. Like I was betraying hmm. Chesky Puller and Dan Daly and all those famous Marines that I looked up to. And, <laughs> and yet, you know, it was like,
0: traitor in the reality. Movie.
2: I didn't realize, like, actually the Army is much bigger. The army's much more comprehensive and they have a million people that they need like every month. So the recruiter said, Come down basically tomorrow and we'll get you right in. We'll have you in Iraq in you know a couple months, he said. And I was like, Okay. And and that I found there was a number of us Marine former Marines that were in the chaplain school when I went in January two thousand four. I arrived and there was I think two or three other chaplains in that group of about seventy who had been enlisted personnel in the Marine Corps and then had joined the Army just because the Army said, you know, come down tomorrow. Eventually the Navy realized they needed a lot of chaplains and they changed their sort of non-interested policy because <laughs> they needed tons because the Marines kept deploying and deploying and deploying wow. as the Army did. But like most wars, they said, it'll be over in really short time. World War One was supposed to be over in a month, as, it, as history tells us. No.
1: Keep losing them. You Yeah, know,
0: we lost a little bit of that last feed, but, you know, I hear what you say. You know, I don't. Is there anything. such? Is there such thing as a short war when it's that large? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. if Is that possible?
2: Well, like Thomas Jefferson said about the Revolutionary War, and he was in France when he said this, but he, he said we have the wolf by the ears. We can't hold on much longer and we can't safely let the wolf go. And every war is like that. It's like, OK, we want the other side to quit so we can quit, but we don't want to be the first ones to quit. And any situation (laughs) like that is bound to kind of last a long time.
1: (laughs) I'm just curious, just to go back to your Marine experience, when, you know, given your, your childhood and how you grew up and then going into the Marines, how did that impact you?
2: Yeah, that's a really a question I'm probably still exploring in a lot of ways. I think going into the Marine Corps from a very fundamentalist Christian upbringing. It, it reinforced a lot of those beliefs that I had about, about God and the universe and how the universe works. The Marine Corps works on the same principles. A lot of, a lot of religions do in churches, you know, you do the right thing and then everything will work out. I'm um, kind of that very simplistic, you know, follow this procedure, do your best and things will come out really well. And then, so I followed that for many years until I went to Iraq and, and realized the complexities of life over there. I came back to a divorce. I came back to a, just a really shattered existence. I really didn't know who I was anymore. And so all that very simplistic teaching that, that does you know serve the Marine Corps well and serves the Army and, and religion well, that you know you do the right thing, you work hard at it, and everything will work out fine that narrative just flipped itself on its head and and died mm. in that experience so I went through a transformation of trying to figure out who I was again what was my purpose in life uh and I felt lied to by the religion that I'd grown up in by God by the Marine Corps by the army <laughs> in a lot of ways and this is all internal you know to me it, it's it was all happening inside my heart and mind but for me it was a, it was a really big, transformation to say actually just working harder in a more simplistic pattern doesn't always give us the things we want sometimes we have to follow the holy spirit in a very different direction yes. than what we've been told
0: that's a great point you know you come back to basically a hell hole when you get back from being in hell and you know did you have any regrets when you got back
2: ah uh, no no i i have I'm kind of a person that loves history a lot. So I, I'm often kind of drawn to nostalgia and thinking back and say, I wish I had done this differently. But in reality, um, I know enough about life. And I knew that then that, that there, that turning back that clock, that grief tells us that, man, if you just turn the clock back to the minute before everything went bad or before you lost someone or before something terrible happened, you know, just go and turn that clock, turn that dial and, and I kind of wanted to for a long time. I tried to reconstruct the life I had lost in many ways after coming back from Iraq. But I kind of always knew that, that this was probably a better direction in life in spite of the pain and in spite of the losses. I mean, the loss of my marriage was a really big deal to me in a way that I had never experienced before. Which And the loss of the marriage meant that it was a loss of my credibility as a chaplain in Iraq here I was helping all these Joes and specialists and sergeants and majors and lieutenants with their marriages. And, and then I come back and my marriage is the one that is mm-hmm. the joke. on am the, on the, in the post housing area. You know, suddenly my marriage is the one that is breaking apart and everyone's wondering why and what happened and, and all those things. So I found that to be really humbling and very unnerving which put me into a really good spot because suddenly I was one of the people I served. I was, I was just like every specialist on the block. I was just like every sergeant, just like every lieutenant, just like every captain uh, in the military. I was experiencing the exact same things they were experiencing, which I, I eventually learned were symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, symptoms of moral injury, symptoms of, of anxiety that kind of wouldn't go away. Through normal means, and and so that led me on a really good, you know, into a really good place of being able to be there with people when they suffered, but it did come at a really high price. That so, yeah, sometimes I regret that.
1: What were the things that you did to to cope with that? How did you deal with it, and what support did you seek out?
2: Well, I was experiencing a lot of shame. Be, being an army chaplain and being an expert on, you know, how to be a good soldier and how to be a good person and. I felt a lot of shame that my life was not going so well. I felt like if I had worked harder, done a better job, then everything would have been fine. But I actually felt the opposite, that the harder I had tried, the the more naive I had become. And so I felt a lot of shame. So I became very internal about what I was going through. I didn't really tell anybody. I didn't go to counseling when I came back. In fact, I took on more responsibilities as a brigade chaplain, and you know, I was like, if I just keep working harder, I'll things will work out and everything will go back to the way it was before the deployment. I just mm-hmm. wanted that life back again. and I, I just thought the harder I worked, the better it would get. In fact, it worked the opposite way. Mm-hmm. The more I tried to um, kind of control the situation, the, the less control I had. And then by the time about a year went by, and I became a hospital chaplain. I was in a psych ward every day for half the day with, with patients. I was on an amputee ward with the, with the patients at Walter Reed who had, had recently lost limbs and I mean, legs and arms. And people that had brain injuries and, and, and of course, um, numerous other injuries as well. I really felt like, man, they have all the problems. I'm not allowed to have problems. It's <laughs> you know, just like... You know, it's so visible, those kinds of wounds. And I, I noticed that a lot of the caregivers that I was with at Walter Reed and, and other hospitals were experiencing similar feelings and emotions. And, and that's kind of where I started to realize maybe I deserve to get some help for this. Maybe I can go to counseling. Maybe I can talk to a doctor about these things. And I started to. And it was really scary and it made me really afraid somebody would see me in the waiting room at the social worker's office. But in fact, that was where the light started to come into my life in a lot in a lot bigger way.
0: Did you find was it was it easy to get help? You know, we know there's a lot of amazing programs out there. Was was it easy, or did you get support, or did you have to do most of it on your own? I've
2: always found in the military, on active duty, and in the reserves, that there are just so many people that, that do want to help veterans and military members, both in the civilian world and in the inside internally, I was so hesitant. And so I didn't want to be a veteran, you know, the stereotype of a veteran with the problems. And, you know, he's this guy with a cut off camo jacket talking about stories that nobody really wants to hear. And, and, you know, so I didn't want to be that kind of person that was needy and, and helpless. And so I think it was my own shame and the state, stig- there was still a lot of stigma surrounding looking for help while you're on active duty. And eventually I just realized I'm going to have to leave active duty in the military. One, because my children were moving to different States and I wanted to live near them with, with my ex wife. Um, and a number of other reasons, I've got to leave active duty. So once I decided to do that, it became a lot easier to get help because I didn't have to worry about my career as much. Um, Although people that did have to worry about their careers, they were the ones I think that that really struggled with getting help because, you know, the last thing you want is for some doctor to walk in or some commander to walk in and say, Listen, you're you're too ill to to do this anymore. And the fear of that I think keeps a lot of people from getting help. But I found there was tons of people that wanted to help. But like most things, nobody wants help. I mean, I didn't want help, you know. I only want the help that I'm asking for. And I found like that metaphor of helping veterans or helping people in the military often is kind of paternalistic. And, and I didn't, I felt like a grown man. I didn't want anybody to help me. (laughs) What I really needed was somebody to be there with me. And there were some people that were there with, with me, but it was, I had to take that first step and I had to be the, and I took the first step when I had some real setbacks. I mean, one night, I got so drunk that I crashed my bicycle in Washington D C and I went over the handlebars and, and hit a hit a curb or I don't even know what I hit. I blacked out and woke up in my apartment. I don't know how I got in there mm. and just covered in blood, my knees were all skinned up, bleeding, like I I think two broken ribs, like I just hurt so bad and I thought, I've gotta do something different. Like this is not working. And that's really when I took that first step to talk to a psychiatrist about what I was going through I'd been meeting with some social workers and who were doing great counseling and they identified and said you really sound suicidal and self-destructive and they identified that and then referred me but it was really that crash when I wrecked my bicycle which you know if I had been driving a car would have been a car and would have been Mm. who knows Mm. how more catastrophic but it was that crash that I remember being like a turning point, like, oh, this this coping mechanism of using alcohol this way is going to eventually not work anymore. It's going to result in a lot more pain and suffering on my part and other people's part. So maybe i got to endure the pain and the shame of seeking help.
1: You bring up some great points in regards to while you're on active duty, there is more of a, a stigma to be able to get help because of your career. What do you think it will, you know, obviously there's a, a need for it as soon as it, it happens or it arises instead of suppressing it. What do you think it's going to take for, member? you know, how can we transform, how can the Army or the military in general transform that?
2: The best way is for senior people, and actually not senior people, but middle management, middle middle management, if you will, like, you know, NCOs and uh, company commanders and lieutenants and platoons and to actually like do it themselves to make appointments with the chaplain publicly. Like, you know, there, there was a story, this old first sergeant that I heard, i never met anyone who did this, but he would always call the chaplain from the day room or the company area where all the troops were kind of milling around. And he would say, chaplain, I need to talk to you about something, you know, real loud. so Everybody could hear him. And, and then they'd he'd make an appointment and hang up the phone just, just so the troops would know, like, it's okay to talk to someone about something that's really perplexing and it's on your heart. And so I think modeling the kind of behavior we want to see in our troops, it's like the first thing leaders can do no. is to say like, yeah, I, Oh, I have an appointment this afternoon at, over at mental health. I've got to go over there, but I'll be back, you know, a little bit later. That goes that is better than any poster on the wall saying, if you're suicidal, call this number. Right. I mean, modeling the behavior we want to see. And I found in veterans ministry here in Texas and around the country, the power of vulnerability that Brene Brown talks about, that right. there's a lot of shame tied up in, in military service. Because they—they they, we do teach that if you do everything right, nothing bad will happen. Mm-hmm. If you follow these procedures, your truck will never break down. Uh, no one will ever die. And we, we say these things over and over again in training cuz we want to train to a really high standard but but when we break some of that stuff when some of that stuff just breaks in the murphy's law uh, upside down world of war and military service then we feel this flood of shame that that i didn't just make a mistake that i am a mistake mm-hmm. and we get feedback from the world around us that we are a mistake and i felt that all the time when i when i looked at my failed marriage when i looked at my inability to to kind of be the kind of chaplain i thought i could be i felt a lot of shame and so that that made me feel like i was a mistake and so for me the the way the healing was often just modeling the kind of behavior i i wanted um i wanted my soldiers to do i wanted them to be open about their problems and struggles and probably in the book death letter i'm probably too open you know, I mean, i it's all about my sex life and bungling attempts to find love. And, you know, this is mm-hmm. but I realized, like, everybody else that I was serving with was having these kinds of experiences. And I was like, and when I read memoirs from chaplains from World War Two and Vietnam and even Iraq and Afghanistan, they leave this stuff out. There, there's these paragraphs where they talk about a suicide attempt, but they don't say who attempted it. <laughs> like, obviously them themselves wow. themselves there's so much shame to even talk about these transition experiences that I just said, I'm going to lay it all out there. I was already having a lot of PTSD symptoms of foreshortened future where you kind of don't think you're going to be around for very long. So it was kind of easy for me to kind of overshare that way because I just didn't care. Like I didn't feel like anyone would care. Um, But I found that in that exchange of vulnerability, people, have responded and said, yeah, that was what it was like for me. Or I had a very similar experience. And, you know, hearing, reading your book was like hearing my son speak to me from the grave. I've had mothers tell me that I'm like, really? Okay. But that's the power of vulnerability that, that to be a human being on this planet means that we are going to struggle. We're going to suffer. We're going to die. And then we're going to rise again. And that's the story of, of, the Christian story is that there's always a death. Everything we treasure is going to break or die or fall apart. But that is the precise moment where we can feel the love of God in a way that we've never felt before. And then see miracles happen, see new life come out of that. And I've experienced a, a taste of that, a little bit of that. And I'm really thankful for that.
0: You know, some of the things that you say resonate with so many people. And one thing that you did say that, that makes so much sense, and I'm glad you brought it up because it is important, is that example of self-care. And you know this, that almost with every recovery or every life program, self-care is one of the most important pieces of it. So it's wonderful that you pointed that out, that those that are in leadership positions that people look up to, if they show that example of self-care, that those people you know, around them are going to pick up on that. They're going to go, holy cow, this guy who I looked up to or this gal, they're going through the same stuff I'm feeling. If they're doing it, I got to do it or I can do it. And that that's a great point you brought up. And I, I you know, we can all relate to shame and and, yeah. and and how we, you know, the 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 stretch to find love and all those things. So. Uh, amazing things you're saying here. And I know they're resonating with some people. So
1: yeah, it takes courage to seek help. You know, I think there's a stigma that it's weak, but it takes such courage and there's such power and vulnerability. John has this thing about asking people or saying to people, do you know that we have a lot in common? And it's Mm. so true. We have so much in common, but it takes somebody to take a stand and have the courage to stand up to share. So you know, but I applaud you for what you've been doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Nina. Thank you. And thank you, David, because you know what? I could come up, hey, David, we got a lot in common. You can look at me and you go, hey, I don't know you. But listen, <laughs> we've, we've lost loved ones. We've had this happen to us. We have the same wants and desires. We both believe in God. You know, and, and there's another thing that somebody was telling me, too. And maybe you can relate to this, but go up to somebody and say, what do you love about yourself? And they go, what? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? And then you say, tell yourself everything, everything. That's what I love <laughs> about myself. And, and I, I forget who told me that, but, but, it, but it makes so much sense. Yeah. I, but I, I love, you know, this is, and then I'll get, I'll get off this. But, you know, when I was in the service, it always seemed really strange to me. And you brought this up. You know, we're training with weapons that basically destroy stuff. But hey, listen. If you want to take time out, the chaplain's going to be here, and you can go three clicks down the road and get set up there, and then you can pray together. You know that some of times they'd make fun of that, but but we went down and we did that. But it was always strange to me. We're we're training to to, to do these things, and God's out here with us. It just never. It seemed strange to me. How, how did uh, you, as a chaplain, how did people, how did people come to grips with that? Yeah,
2: I really thought that that would be my main job in the chaplain corps would be like articulating the case for military operations in Iraq uh, for soldiers who are questioning whether they could, you know, be part of this war or not morally. Or and actually, nobody really discussed that over there. I was very very surprised that all this preparatory work I'd done was really for nothing because, like everything in life, you just see it from the little porthole that you're looking out of and you know we were not thinking big picture over there we were thinking oh i got to wake up at two in the morning get the vehicle ready drive over here drop some stuff off try not to get shot drive back go to dinner you know like that, that was sort of what everybody was thinking very short term kind of goal, and we get to go home in the year so we want to do it right as many times as we can so we can get that glorious day to arrive and everything will be fine after that, no more troubles. It's almost like a vision of heaven the day, you know, when the deployment's over. But I did, I had struggled with this when, when I was in the Marine Corps. of You know, my Christian faith, Jesus, who said very clearly to love your enemies. That this is the measure of what kind of love you're supposed to have for other people, is the kind of love that you love for enemies. And, and how do I square that with my role as a as a set-apart person who kills on behalf of our nation. Uh, And you look at military service, the way we wear uniforms, the way we are segregated in in separate living areas, and, and even a separate law system, a separate legal system called the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that our society has always recognized that people that do this work of killing must be set apart in some way. They have to be almost like a separate priesthood, if you will, of people that are functioning under a different moral code than the rest of us. Uh, and, and societies have done this for thousands of years, not not new to Christianity, because they realize that the, the work of violence, of death dealing and intimidation, does something to our souls on a really basic level, that, that we really can't do it forever, and we shouldn't do it forever, and we should do it as little as possible, and as few as possible of us should do it as possible. In other words, like, you know, this should be something a group of people do for us when it's really necessary. And this puts us into a struggle morally when when we have a war that is really hard to, like, see the end goal with or to see, like, what's, what's our purpose here? Why is this violence that we're dealing out and experiencing ourselves really worth it? And Christians have always asked us, since the 4th century, when Rome uh, became a Christian empire all of a sudden. It was like overnight, the, the, the culture of Rome, this imperial power that actually persecuted Christians from time to time, becomes a Christian nation, becomes a Christian empire, with Christian emperors and Christian priests and chaplains running around, and they're official. And so theologians back in the 4th and 5th centuries did a lot of work to say, how can you serve in the military and still call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus? And one of the ways they worked that out, and that's a long explanation, but this is like what I've been studying lately and um, wrote a book about it, <laughs> you know, the Irving for Penitentials about this. They realized that, like, you're participating in something evil when you're involved in a war, involved in killing. So when you come back from that experience, you must go through some kind of purgation. You must go through some kind of purifying or cleansing ritual or experience. It might take a year or two. Um, many Roman soldiers would go back after they served in the military and do what they called the catechumenate, which is like a two-year kind of preparation for baptism. Again, even if they were baptized before, they so would kind of go through this like Christianity 101 training to kind of reset their moral code and compass. Because early Christians, the, the, weird, the weird thing about them. In this fourth and fifth century time, when the nation became Christian, they they still didn't believe in personal violence. Like, they believed if somebody attacked you on the street, you shouldn't retaliate. But Jesus didn't retaliate. <laughs> they were like, Jesus didn't, you shouldn't stop crucifying him. You shouldn't stop someone from assaulting you. But you can serve in the military in a Roman formation and, like, <laughs> hack people to death with swords. That's okay, because it's in a, context of war that we say you're doing this for the community but individual violence was something christians have always rejected and the quandary now is what are the purifying rituals what are the cleansing rituals after war american military personnel need to do i I, what i noticed among my veteran friends i noticed this among myself in myself when i came back i didn't want to go near church i felt like church was the last place that would want me i felt Like, maybe I wasn't good anymore. And I was a chaplain, you know. I was like the least violent person in Iraq in many ways. But I was part of it. I was pushing that spear from far back on the spear. Doing with the Episcopal Veterans Fellowship and the other church groups. We've got a minister in Florida, actually, is doing these services with us and saying, we're going to bring these experiences to God through a church service. We're going to have a healing service or a, a ritual or pilgrimage. Where we bring this stuff to God, just like those old Roman soldiers did back in the Middle Ages. Those old Norman soldiers did back in the, after the conquest of England. They, they brought this stuff to God. They actually did penance which kind of wacky and weird, but they did, they went on pilgrimages to kind of cleanse their system of this violence so they could oh, wow. come back and be part of a, a society that wants to heal and care for every single person in it. Long answer. Good question. No, no,
0: no, but that's a great answer.
1: Just for clarification for those listening, did chaplains carry weapon while
2: you are in Iraq? No, the the Chaplain Corps uh, a long time ago decided not to carry weapons, even though the Geneva Convention allows for medical and chaplain personnel to carry weapons for self-defense or defending injured people. The Chaplain Corps, right around the time of World War I, decided we're just going to make a policy for each other that we're never going to do that. Um, just be, and it makes sense, you know. So much of the military uh, authoritarian system is based on the, the weapons that you carry, and we want to be people that are, are have a nurturing presence on the battlefield. And and uh, I mean, officers—you know—they'll joke: officers don't carry pistols to shoot the enemy. You know, they carry pistols to shoot, enforce the, the rules. And chaplains, right away, we said we don't need to to be seen as enforcers of military policy. What we are is, a, is the presence of God in places that most people would say God is not here at all. But we want to say God is here. God is here in every experience of human life, even in war, which is really weird and takes a long time to, to heal from and work out. But but God is here. And God God's not here to condemn anyone. God's here to listen and love and do that presence of healing.
1: I know we normally don't ask this till the end, but given what you were referring to in the separation between how we, we separate ourselves, we clothe ourselves different. We um, have a different um, uniform code of military justice. What would you say to our civilian counterparts, you know, about veterans? What's, what would be your message to them?
2: I really think that um, veterans are often people that are experiencing unresolved grief. I know I experienced a lot of unresolved grief about my military service, mainly about the people who died that I served with, um, and also about parts of me that died when I served. Parts of my sort of innocent and carefree nature um, have kind of disappeared in my life. And so whenever you're dealing with someone who's grieving, you want to be really careful what you say to them. Most of the things that we're going to say to try to comfort a person that's in grief is really just a way to fill the silence and comfort ourselves. So I, you know, I I appreciate when people come up to me and say, thank you for your service. It means a lot. I do feel the love that they have for me. It's always a little awkward because I'm like, Hey, I was just doing my job. You know, that's the old expression. I know it comes from a really good place, but I also know that it, it can sound really cliche and, and sound like it actually puts a little distance between myself and them. What I like to hear and what I like to say is, I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad you came back from that experience. I'm really glad you're here with us right now. I find those kind of messages kind of narrow the gap between the military community and the civilian community, because really, if you lived on this planet a long enough time, you're going to have some pretty awful things happen to all of us. Our world's going to turn upside down. Uh, Veterans have had these experiences. Civilians have had these experiences of human suffering. That's really quite universal, and we can meet each other on that ground, like you were saying earlier, John. I mean, that we all share. Uh, Henry Stack Sullivan, that old uh, sociologist, said we're more alike than we are different. And, you know, that to me is where civilians and military people can meet. Again, somebody that experienced a grief and they had a, motor, a bicycle accident uh, about two years ago. And people told me all sorts of awful stories about <laughs> their brother-in-law who was killed on a motorcycle and, you know, like they just did this like to me constantly. And I was like, I'm not going to tell anybody about this bicycle accident anymore because all they're yeah. going to do is counter story me yeah, to I, death. I can't handle it. So it, to me, the veterans are like that, we try <laughs> to and like like our, you know, we try to counter story. Listening is always the best thing.
0: That's That's a great great point. point to make because, you know, you do, somebody always wants to one up you on the trauma scale and, uh, and, and, you know, and it's like you say, it probably comes from a good place, but it, it can get old after a while, but tell us, you know, you know, to, to take this back to healing and I know you're a writer, we talked about it at the outset and tell us about your books and how that was for you in the healing process. I'm always hesitant to say something is healing
2: because it's like it implies that like everything's better. And (laughs) I mean, if songwriting was healing, songwriters and musicians would be like the most healthy people on the planet. But they're often not. You know, it's (laughs) it's like you know, think about it. The rock and roll musician, you know, they should be the they should be the people of health. But um, but in reality, the writing the death letter, God, sex, and war was like. The fact that someone had heard my story was profoundly healing in the sense that it it did open that door to say, actually, our experiences are are very similar in in this human experience of loss, grief, confusion, turmoil, rebuilding a life. These were themes that that I was writing about that that resonated with people as they heard, because when I read a book. I'm usually thinking of myself while I'm reading it. I'm reading a story about Shackleton going to the South pole, you know, and experiencing hardship. And I'm thinking that's about a like me in a conflict with my coworkers or my boss. And you know, like I'm thinking of my conflict while I'm reading Shackleton. So I know people when they read my books are, are thinking of their own story. So the places where I'm vulnerable and I'm sharing, that's the place they'll resonate with and say, actually th- that kind of happened to me in a lot of ways. And you put it into words. So, I think the idea that we put things into words or put things into art songs or even drawings, anything like that is a way of like sort of encapsulating an experience that we can't do a good job of talking about. I found that I couldn't talk about Iraq after I came home. Like everything I said didn't make any sense. People like kind of nodded their heads, but I wasn't trying to, I couldn't get across what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say was, wow, it was really something and just like make some noises after that wow. as <laughs> well. It was more of like a, like I wanted to write a song or something. It didn't, didn't make sense or sing a song about war from the sixties or something to them in their, in an answer, you know, how many roads must a man walk down or something like that? Cause I couldn't really put it into words, but so writing the book helped me put it, some of that into words to encapsulate that experience of lament because if you look at ancient warriors, they always were writing poems after war. They always wrote books. They always wrote or sang songs or made plays about the war, because they wanted to get at the feelings, without just making it a, a cold account of what happened and how many people died. They wanted to tell you, you know, this this was a transformative event. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to write a play about it. I write a song. The book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in the Hebrew Bible. They're all written by people that profoundly experienced war in their own society, in their own land in many ways. And many of them fought in it, King David being the most notable warrior poet of that era. And they do capture how confusing it can all be. And that to me is like what I was trying to do in death letters, kind of write a lament that encapsulated my experience. And And I don't know how successful I was, but I have heard people say, you know, that was that that was what I felt, too. When I read that book, I felt you put into words what I was feeling and couldn't really say.
0: So how can people get your books?
2: I will hand deliver them uh, at your house. Just text message me and I'll be right over. Uh, You coming to
1: Sarasota? We got
0: you coming down here to Florida now, man.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um, I'll be right down. But also through our website, episcopalveteransfellowship.org. That's one way to do them. Or Amazon, if you want to swim the mighty river of Amazon. That's the fastest way to get get a book. Or a local bookshop. You know, I, a friend of mine texted me that uh, two of my books were in half-price books yesterday. And I was like, really? Half-price books carry them? So you never know where books show up. Books have a way of finding us, I think, and... My my latest book is a novel about kind of that penance process after war. It's kind of a rip roaring tale of a bunch of veterans going back to Iraq, you know, ten years later. And that's actually a free podcast.
0: Do you have a? T- um, is there a title on that one? That's the the weird word
2: erminfred Penitential. Ermenfred was a a character from the Norman invasion of England uh, back in ten sixty six. We're almost on the uh, huh. thousand year anniversary of that one, but. But the post-traumatic God is if you're, if you're a person that used to have faith and you feel like you maybe lost it in military experience or war and a divorce or something like that, that is really why I wrote that book. I wrote that book to say, this is how people, including me, have reconstructed their faith after it was severely deconstructed, after God kind of died. This is the post-traumatic God that showed up. And can show up for you, um, and it might look a little different than my experience, but that's how we're death letters. If you want to read about God, sex, and war, that's like that's basically it. <laughs> and uh, my novel that's in this podcast, if you want to hear kind of a rip roaring action story about about people's uh, spiritual experiences in war, mystical experiences, that's what that's about. But yeah, they're they're on, on Amazon, Barnes Noble, I think even Walmart carries them now on, online. So bye from there.
0: Well, we definitely appreciate your time. You know, a couple of other questions here before we get going, but you know, what does freedom mean to you, David?
2: The free means to me, like the ability to do what's right. I've never done really well with, with just the freedom being the ability to do whatever I want. uh, Because a lot of times when I look at life individualistically, I end up hurting a lot of people that I am the only being in the universe that matters um people are gonna get hurt because I'm not gonna be thinking about them. Most of the evil in the world's done by people that are only thinking of themselves. Or you know, they're not really mean to hurt us. They're just only thinking of themselves. So freedom to me is like the 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 space to do the right thing. An environment that's 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 uh open enough where I can do the right thing, which for me is often like getting up and running in the morning. And to me that feels like freedom because even though it's hard and difficult and I don't like waking up early, to me, that feels like a lot more freedom than when I get wasted and stay up for three in the morning, you know, fighting people on Facebook and then sleep <laughs> until nine. Like that's that's a kind of freedom too. It's a different kind it doesn't of freedom. Feel good. It doesn't feel good. No. To me, the word liberty and freedom uh, are two inter- kind of interchangeable words used in the in the American early American literature about what kind of society we want to create. And liberty always seemed like a word that has decreased in value over the years, but it has more to do with a community having the freedom to live together in harmony and peace. You know, freedom often means like my ability to just do whatever I want. I'm like, "Eh, Liberty and freedom need to go together. Mm -hmm. We need to have a, find out who we are, what we need to do in life. But we also need to find out what do we as a community need to do? How do we have a good society? How do we have a place where everybody can flourish and feel loved and, and not at the expense of one or two other people that was kind of pushed to the margins.
1: You've, you've, I, I love how you have completely transformed you know, what you've been through and done and experienced and, and transformed it into writing and helping others.
0: I mean, you've made me think about a lot of things today and a lot of great points. And one thing that Nina and I love is to hear uh, the wisdom that comes out of people that have experienced similar things and different things as well. And, you know, if one person buys your book and transforms themselves or finds out a way that they can improve their their own lives and you know you've helped one human being on the yeah. face of this planet then then that was your reason for being here and you know I, I can't say enough about straight out of combat radio and what our mission is to try to uh, diminish the negative stereotypes of veterans and, and especially combat veterans who sometimes get the short end of the stick and you know, you're certainly an inspiration to me and, and and I know Nina as well and to lots of people out there. So all I can say is, you know, and it's not cliche, I mean it from my heart is God bless you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: I feel that. And I also wish God blessing on you and thank you for helping us tell our story. And also, um, listening to that story—that means a lot. Thank you.
1: Well, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, and thank I, you. <laughs> I love that recommendation. My partner is not a fan of the "thank you for your service," and that is a, a great way to connect people. And just like you said, so I'm glad you're here.
2: Thank you. Yeah, one of the diagnoses in the Civil War and Napoleonic Wars of PTSD or combat stress was nostalgia. That's what they called it back then. Yeah, it was the inability to kind of be present where you were supposed to be or where you were physically and they found that a lot of these veterans were kind of off somewhere else emotionally or intellectually and so that to me that that sounds very like hey we're here right now we're here together right now and that's 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 what matters in life not so much all the other things that may come in the future or already
0: have happened but what's happening right now awesome thank you very much and thanks for being here Before they burn it down Better dig deep And put them in the ground But on their hands
2: Yeah, they're feel down Sing us all